Welcome to the 115th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times best-selling thriller and young adult novelist Ridley Pearson. Stay tuned for the interview. I did want to take just a quick moment and ask you if you have listened to this podcast and if you found it helpful for your own writing or your own interest in books and reading and writers and authors, please take a moment and leave a, leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. It only takes about a minute or two and it helps in terms of the rankings for iTunes. Again, stay tuned for the interview with Ridley Pearson. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Ridley Pearson. Ridley is a New York Times bestselling author with nearly 30 adult suspense novels and over 15 children's adventure novels published in 22 languages in 70 countries. Pearson's latest novel, Choke Point, is the second risk agent novel and it's available in bookstores now. Ridley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure, sure. Well, at the outset, I wondered if you could read just a page or two of Choke Point. You bet. Choke Point is the second in the Risk Agent series. Uh, the first book was Risk, Risk Agent. Um, and this book takes place in Amsterdam, although the opening scene takes place in North Africa. Great. The air is visible. It smells of camel dung and human sweat. It tastes worse. It comes in hot waves, stealing. I'm going to start over, Jeff. That's fine. Not because a problem. I've got all sorts of things ringing and buzzing. I'm turning <laughs> them off. Can I start again? Yeah, not a problem. Are you there? I am. I am. I'm here. You there? I'm here. Okay, thank you, sir. Yeah, sure. The air is visible. It smells of camel dung and human sweat. It tastes worse. It comes in hot waves, stealing any appetite he might have had and stinging his eyes. Flies buzz past his ears and light on his face. He waves them away, his right hand a horsetail of constant motion. The sun-soaked skin of the man who sits cross-legged before him looks shrink-wrapped over long, thin bone. Unflinching, roomy eyes stare back at him beneath wild, white eyebrows. John Knox studies the man's long, flat-nailed fingers as they punch out numbers on a battery-operated calculator that serves as their translator, money, the only language spoken here. The chess sets before him are things of beauty. Knox is offered such sets everywhere he trades. He's tired of them. But these are hand-carved, inlaid, stone boards and intricately carved jade pieces. Fine jade, not the cheap stuff. What they're doing in Kirawan, Tunisia, is anybody's guess. Knox used to try to think through such anomalies no longer. He doesn't care where they came from or who made them, just craftsmanship and price. Wait sometimes because shipping has gotten so expensive. Profit is not in quantity but quality. He needs to reach a price that will allow him to sell them for 10 times cost. His mind grinds through figures, taxes, shipping, breakage, shrinkage. The merchant taps the calculator, signaling a new asking price. Knox blows away a fly and reads the number upside down. It could have been a gust of wind, the touch is so light. 
A moth-eaten cat that appears by his leg offers another possibility. The poor thing looks like it was put in with the laundry and hung out to dry. But accompanying that touch came a sour odor, not cat urine, something distinctly human. Tailing faintly behind a pleasant, almost intoxicating sweet warmth of milk chocolate. It's the chocolate that causes Knox to react reflexively. Turning as he does, he misses the boy's left ankle but feels hairs brush the tips of his fingers. Up and off the rug and into the melee of the market, the grit of sand against stone under his tevas as he dodges the colorful robes and linen wraps that move about randomly, unintentionally blocking him. The kid got his wallet. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Choke Point or your risk agent novels yet, how would you describe Choke Point? Well, the the short description is um, a security, you know, a security independent contractor and a uh, forensics accountant team up for a private security team to undo problems around the world. The the long answer, um, which, of course, I prefer because I'm a windbag, (laughs) um, is that during the Iraq and Afghani wars, I became kind of fascinated by the privatization of war. And, um, you know, what, what we call private security are really mercenaries. Uh, we spend, as a country, we spend billions on private companies, American companies, that we hire to do warlike things for us. And this be- began, began to fascinate me. Um, one of the things I turned up was that um, during the Iraq War, there were young men who were signing up as private suppliers, um, a company out of Texas hired them to drive 18-wheelers from Kuwait to bases inside Iraq. And these young men, for three or four trips a month into you know, a war zone of Iraq, were being paid $80,000 a month. And my, my eyebrows, you know, authors don't get that, Jeff. Um, my, my eyebrows raised and, uh, I thought, you know, that is an interesting character because it's not the kind of sly Stallone guy who hires on to, um, you know, what used to be called black rock or whatever they were called, uh, you know, who really is a mercenary wants the sort of visceral violence, wants to carry that Uzi. These guys, are willing to be in a hot zone, but non Hello? Figure out that person from the inside out, and that's what the lead character, John Knox, is about in Risk Agent, is who is this guy that many years ago volunteered, basically, to make a lot of money driving into very dangerous places, and why would he do that? And for me, the answer was that he had a brother who was cerebrally challenged, physically challenged, and needed his care because their parents were dead. And he just needs more money than you can possibly ever raise because insurance isn't working out very well. So Knox has done that part of his life. He is now in import-export. His semi-functioning brother helps him from Detroit where they live. Uh, They run a small company, but it's sort of nose flutes and finger cymbals. It's not really the stuff John Knox loves. And a comrade of his, a buddy of his from the Iraq days, the, the actual Kuwaiti days, 
has since hired on to one of these giant private companies and recruits him every now and then for a job. And so what, what the books explore is who is this guy um, and who is this young woman, and we can talk about her if you want or not, but Grace Chu comes out of my year of living in Shanghai. Uh, and I, I throw these two very different worlds, two very different genders together on cases, really as, as case studies for me, so I can get into their heads and figure out who they are. And hopefully I throw them together in action-driven ways that hold you into the book. Um, and I hope I write them in ways that compel you to keep reading. Got you. And so, yeah, can you, can you talk Aren't about you that? Aren't you sorry you asked that question, No, Jeff? no, not at all. Takes not up the all. whole freaking interview. <laughs> not at all. So, so can you tell me about that year in, in um, Shanghai and, and how that uh, informed yeah, the character? It was quite amazing. I, uh, Marcel, my wife and I adopted our second daughter, and uh, she's from China. And one thing led to another, and eventually we decided we would try to live in China for a year. And, and it's very tricky to do that. You need all sorts of visas and things that we were unaware of as we started out on this. But we did figure it out. And um, I ended up teaching a course at Fudan University for a year in creative writing to all Chinese girls and a couple boys. But it was the, uh, it was the junior year of college at Fudan in a very special college, the College of Language and Literature. So these guys were pretty fluent in English. My kids, my wife and I, decided to live right in with the Chinese rather than out in the expat compounds that they have all over Shanghai. Uh, so we lived right on the streets of Shanghai and had just the most amazing experience ever. And Part of that experience for me was once a week I went off to this two-and-a-half-hour course I taught at Fudan. And because I, I taught 30 kids for 17 weeks and then another 30 kids for the next 17 weeks. And most of those kids were young women. Um, I had, I think, four boys in one of the classes and two boys in the other. So I really got to know, without intentional, without it being intentional, I got to know what young 19 and 20 year old women are like in China. And because I had them starting out this project, they were writing memoirs. I learned all about their past. Now, this was, you know, one of those, like in medicine, an unintended consequence. Um, I, I, it didn't occur to me at the time that basically what I would get is 300 essays on what it's like to grow up in China. Uh, I'm actually, Jeff, I'm thinking of someday trying to publish that as a nonfiction book, but uh, these essays are just remarkable. And I got to learn what it's like to be a Korean girl growing up in Korea and then moving to China. I, I learned about what it's like to be a girl from the you know, agriculture areas, the really dirt poor areas of China and arriving to a place like Shanghai. And I became fascinated with these ambitious young women. And that that is who Grace Chu is. She's one of these women who is a Chinese national at heart, but really, you know, these girls are no longer that, much to their parents' consternation. They are young urbanites intent on making a lot of money. They, most of them do graduate studies overseas, either in the U.S. or England. Um, so my girl, Grace Chu, does it in Southern California and serves some time in the Chinese army. And so she's a very complicated character when she arrives into risk agent and then continues her work in Choke Point. That's interesting. So, so Choke Point, uh, you, you haven't mentioned it yet, but it, it deals with 
uh, child labor, and it, it, uh, a lot of it is set in Amsterdam. Uh, while I know that I know that uh, um, the recent news stories are not dealing with Amsterdam, they're dealing with Bangladesh and this this building that collapsed with uh, garment factories. Um, a lot of the the news stories have pointed out that those garment factories are making American clothes. I was wondering, given your research, do do you think it's realistic that that um, given you know our current American economy, that 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 type of of cheaper and cheaper labor will will be eliminated? It won't be eliminated. No, I mean there's there are over. It's estimated there are over two million girls under the age of twelve working around the world, uh, day in and day out. I mean eight, ten, twelve hour days, and um, it's really appalling. And the most appalling is the conditions they keep these young girls in. And some of them, as they then become mature, get sold out into sex trade. So, I mean, these lives are just, you know, they're some pretty awful lives, honestly, Jeff. And, and I, I try to nibble at social issues without, uh, you know, writing polemics or getting sure, on a platform sure. in my books because I want to make them relevant and I want you to come away from reading a book like Choke Point thinking about something. And... Um, I mean, the statistics in Pakistan alone are just, it's just terrifying what's going on. Um, these girls are, in fact, chained to the workplace. Uh, they're underfed. There's no health care. Uh, they live in a squalor and they tie rugs, which is exactly what they do in Choke Point. Um, a young girl shows up um, having escaped one of these places needing medical treatment and is recaptured. And uh, a guy like a Richard Branson decides, you know, enough of this. If nobody's going to solve this, I'm going to solve this. And he puts his money where his mouth is and he hires Rutherford Risk, the company that Knox sometimes works for. And Knox and Grace find themselves in Amsterdam trying to bring down um, basically a black market operation that many people who live there don't want brought down. Uh, as, as you will read, if you read up on the Pakistan situation, fathers sell their daughters into these knot shops at the age of seven or eight for a pretty hefty sum of money, knowing they're only going to get half of that, but they still do it. And these girls are indentured servants for the next seven, eight years of their lives. So it's, you know, I'm trying to shine not a spotlight, but maybe a pen light on what to me is a, a really awful situation in the world. And, and maybe, you know, of the hopefully 100,000 people that read the book, maybe two rise up and do something about it or give some money to somebody who can do something about it and we make you know a little bit more awareness but again i i don't try to drive that home and you don't see a lot of that squalor and stuff that's just the setting of the book sure sure well in your research for choke point was there anything that stood out for you that surprised you i think when you do research for the, any of these books at least uh, the research i do always surprises me which is why i get so excited about writing the books um, the, my entire year in Shanghai really informed the risk agent. And for choke point, I went over to Amsterdam for a few days, but, um, and, and it was amazing, but given the state of the internet, you can do, you know what, um, I've been writing books sadly for a long, long time and often with a, with some sort of social issue behind them. And, um, in the, you know, quote, the old days, back in the 80s and 90s when I was writing, I really had to go to these places and spend three weeks or longer. And with the internet now, you can do, I must do, oh gosh, I have no idea, hundreds and hundreds between, uh, I have two assistants, so between me and my assistants, we do just 
hundreds of hours of research and it all astounds you. Um, I'm getting emails, you know, five times a day from my assistant saying, check this out, check that out, check this out, check that out. And, and my eyes just go wide and say, well, we're on to something. And then as you say, you know, here I am just about to publish the book and the building collapse in, in Bangladesh. And it's, it's, you know, right out of my novel. So right, right. sometimes you just end up, you know, putting your finger on the, on the hotspot. Sure. Sure. Well, in addition to your adult thriller novels like Choke Point, you've also written young adult novels and you've co-written young adult novels with Dave Barry. The, the, the Peter Who's he? <laughs> Who's that guy? Yeah, no, I don't know. The thing I get is, is it the Dave Barry? I say it is. It's the Dave Barry. The Dave Barry. Yeah. So, so did you always want to write young adult novels or, or how did you start co-writing novels with Dave Barry? How did that come about? Well, you know me, Jeff. I have a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is um, I have two kids. So that's the short answer. And, and when you have kids and read to them, eventually as a writer, you say, why am I reading somebody else's books? Why am I not reading my own books to them? Um, do you want the long answer or will I? Uh, yeah, I sure, sure. No, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's hear the, the long, long answer. answer is that Dave Barry and I, for 20 years, played in the same all-authors rock band, along with Amy Tan and Scott Turow, Stephen King, Mitch Allen, Greg Isles. Yeah, who are these people? <laughs> um, raising money for nonprofits by making complete idiots out of ourselves. Uh, so Dave and I became friends, and when my daughter asked me how Peter Pan met Captain Hook, and this little writer's light went off in my head, and I said, how indeed? Uh, a week later, I was down playing music and staying at Dave's house uh, in Miami. And he said, what are you doing? I said, you know, I'm seriously considering trying to write a prequel to Peter Pan because my daughter asked me the most amazing question. And I realized we don't know. Not only do we not know how Peter met Captain Hook, we don't know why Peter can fly. We don't know why he never grows old. We don't know how he can detach from his shadow. And Dave's eyes just kind of went wider and wider. And I said, Dave... You write this very sort of immature, funny stuff. I write these very, you know, high-intensity adult thrillers. What if we combined our talents and wrote a funny, suspenseful story about how a boy became Peter Pan? And we ended up writing a book called Peter and the Star Catchers. Uh, and Disney got a hold of it and did this amazing job publishing it. We subsequently wrote four more novels in the series – um, they were all hugely best-selling books, number one New York Times bestsellers. Um, and in the interim, I had long since started a series called The Kingdom Keepers, uh, which is about five teenagers who get inside the Disney theme parks after dark when they're shut down, only to realize there's been this battle going on between the good and the bad Disney characters for 50 years, and the kids have walked into the middle of it. So, you know, there's... There's so much fun in writing, and, and there's really no difference between my adult fiction and my adventure fiction for young readers, whether it's written with Dave Barry or not, except that my adult fiction is probably a little more complicated and R-rated, and my um, younger fiction is a little simpler, not much, um, and G or PG-rated. 
That's good to know. Um, so, so I know that you've been working as a writer for many years. Can you still remember what it was like to um, have your first novel published and what that process was like for you of getting that first novel published? You know, I remember that era more than even three or four years ago. I mean, that era now being almost 30 years ago. I can, you know, I can tell you right where I was sitting writing that book. I can tell you what I did on the day I got the phone call. The book was sold. I remember exactly where I was standing when the UPS guy handed me my book. Um, it's amazing how that is, you know, it's like a wedding or something. It's a really big deal in my case because um, I, I think every author has the same experience. But if they don't, it would be certainly true in my case because I wrote six and a half, seven hours a day for eight and a half years, Jeff, before I sold a book. So it was a long graduate school of hard knocks. Wow. And when that finally happened, it was such a big deal in my life that, I mean, I can tell you what it smelled like in that kitchen <laughs> where I wrote, you know, I mean, it, um, and, it was and a so, big, so, big deal to me. So, so given that, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm curious, I mean, was your, was your wife kind of the, the breadwinner if you were doing eight hours a day for, for that long? Yes. Um, she, she contributed for sure, but I was also working, I, uh, I mean, I think all this ends up informing my writing, but I worked as a house cleaner in a hospital. I cleaned the OR and the ER uh, five, six days a week. I yeah. played music two, three nights a week. That's really what has kept me alive. Um, what kept me alive all through my 20s was I was a, quote, professional musician. Um, and, and that's what I relied on. But I, you know, I have fixed brakes on cars. I've, I've taken right. apart engines. I've been a bartender. I've been a waiter. I've been a dishwasher in a soup in a fancy gourmet soup restaurant. Um, you name it, I've done those jobs out there in order to have my fix of writing. And it's and, great and, and, because and so, then... So, so as, as, you were, as you were, you know, working as a professional musician, what, what was it that, that prompted your interest in writing? Are you, are you the type of person that you, you know, started writing when you were a kid? Or, or what was the thing that fired you up to spend eight years to, to, to get to the point of publishing your first novel? I had written a lot as a kid because I taught myself how to touch type and I had nothing to type. So between maybe 10 and 15, I wrote a whole bunch of, I'm sure, really lousy short stories. Um, but when I, when I ended my college run, I went out on the road as a musician. And that's, a, that's an, it was a perfect thing for me to do in my 20s. But you also realize that this is not something you want to do in your 40s. Um, and, and I tried. I, I really gave it. I, I was a singer-songwriter. Um, and, and I really gave it my all to get that big record deal. And it never happened. And, you know, that's, that's a huge disappointment in life. But uh, what did happen was I knew that I was a storyteller. And so during the days, I was writing my stories. And at night, I was playing music. And in between, I was writing, working any odd job I could get hired to do. And, it, you know, it taught me a lot about poverty. I was dirt poor for over a decade. I mean, you know, the, the gas being shut off in my apartment, rats were in my apartment. Um, and I grew up in an affluent neighborhood, you know, the son of well-off parents. Uh, but to their credit, they weren't going to help me. You know, when I left home to be a musician, my dad said, dude, you are on your own. And, and it, it, they came to all my gigs. They were great supporters. 
but there were no checks in the mail, you know, so I ran out of money all the time. And, and for a long period, my entire diet was 99 cent fish and chips up the road. Um, I mean, it was, it was tough times, but it, nothing could have been better for me than that because I understand the value of a dollar and I know I have to work hard to make a dollar. And, and I take this writing very seriously and have from the day that first book published, I write 10 hours a day every day and that, of the week. And then on Friday, on Saturday and Sunday, I never work less than two to four hours. Even when my family takes vacations, I write five to six hours on those days. I know that this is not something that I am entitled to. This is something I have to earn. And I hope the books reflect that. I work like a dog on these books. I write, the kids' books have never been less than four full drafts, so maybe 1,600 pages to publish a 400-page book. And the adult books are more like six and eight drafts. They're more like 2,500, 3,000 pages to get a book published. So hopefully that's reflected in the read and their fun reads. Wow. So, so I'm, I'm curious, though, about, about those eight years uh, of work before you published your first novel. What, can, can you remember? I mean, you know, I mean, because some people, uh, I mean, obviously you hear of the, these uh, um, situations where someone just writes a novel and it's published when they're, you know, in their Those early. Those infuriate me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was on a panel last week out in L.A. and the author next to me said, well, my first book was turned down. <laughs> I felt like saying, really? Well, my first 11 scripts were turned down, as well as three novels, all of which were rewritten about eight times. So you go sit over in that corner. <laughs> so so what, was the, what was the kind of learning process for, uh, like for you? I mean, did you basically have to kind of teach yourself how to, to write a commercial novel? I did, but I have to confess that, you know, the reason I do an awful lot of volunteer work here, I live in St. Louis now, um, with kids in school, uh, is that I had a mentor at every stage of this. And without those two or three older gentlemen, um, I just couldn't have done it. I had an agent who stepped in early out of retirement. He, he left retirement to re-represent me. And he edited me for, for a number of those eight years, maybe four of those eight years. And um, I was initially edited by a screenwriter who had been on a show called Sea Hunt back in the Stone Age uh, with Lloyd Bridges, a guy named Stan Silverman. And he passed me off, helped pass me off to this other agent. Um, so at each stage, I had a gentleman who was usually in his 70s or 80s reading my work, telling me where I was a moron. And um, getting me to read what I needed to read and getting me to write better. Uh, then I got a terrific agent named Al Zuckerman at Writer's House in New York. And Al held my hand for the next oh, eight or nine years of my being published uh, and just kept editing me and kept me on course. Uh, the whole thing has been a collaborative process. I have a terrific editor now in uh, a woman named Chris Pepe at Putnam and a woman named Wendy Lefcon at Disney for my two different sides of me. But uh, I have an editor named Genevieve Gagne-Haas, who is my freelance editor. I, you know, without these people, um, I, I couldn't write the copy on a popsicle stick. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I need help, but I get it, and hopefully I deliver. 
That's great. Well, well, I mean, that certainly uh, speaks to the the amount of work to to you know be a consistent um, uh, bestseller. So, so what advice, given all of that work and given all of your experience and your success to date, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? Well, there's you know you want the short answer. I'm just kidding. I'll give you the short answer. The first is always know your beginning, middle, and end. Uh, A lot of writers just don't understand that need and they will get halfway through a book and and fall apart because they didn't think about the beginning, the middle and an end. There's a really terrific book called A Writer's Journey by Christopher Vogler. And then I would read Stephen King's On Writing. Those two books uh, will help you a ton. The main thing is that you have to read much more than you think you do, and you have to read what I call gourmet reading. You have to read it, and when a paragraph informs you, you know, like John D. McDonald can, in one short paragraph, John D. McDonald can paint an entire character. The rest of us take four pages to do that. So study that paragraph. We all use basically the same words. So study how people accomplish what they accomplish. And then pick a time, whether it's a half hour a day, like me, six hours a day, uh, an hour on the weekend. But, but pick that time and don't do anything but sit in your chair and write for that hour, that half hour, those five hours. Don't golf. Don't accept an invitation to go play tennis. You got to say, nope, that's my writing time. I'm sitting in the chair and I'm doing it. Good advice. Good advice. So do you have any specific writing processes or rituals or do you just sit down and, you know, start working? <laughs> well, I I certainly do the latter. Um, I don't, you know, I don't burn incense or have those kind of rituals. What I <laughs> what I do is I, I outline um, and it's not for everybody, but anybody starting out should outline uh, at least their first two or three attempts. Because you will find, and I just dealt with a kid yesterday. I met him at a Starbucks. He's struggling to get his senior project done. And I, and, and I asked him, you know, what's in the beginning, middle, and end of a book? Well, he had no idea. And I said, dude, you can't write a story if you don't know what's in the beginning, middle, and end of a story. There are elements that you must follow. It's not a formula. It is a form. And it goes back to the Greeks. And if, if you don't know the form then you're just free, free writing and free writing nobody wants to read. And he went, oh. And he wrote me this long email this morning and said, oh, my gosh, now that we've talked, suddenly I see all these places my story's making no sense. And I said, thank goodness, you know. So, yeah, I mean, there's just uh, there's a process I do, which is outline and research and outline and research. And I never stop writing. I write a million hours a day. And in terms of your outlines, I wonder if you could be a little bit more specific. Are you doing, um, you know, a scene by scene outline? Yes, I do a scene by scene outline and I group those scenes into a middle, a beginning and an end. So act one, act two, act three. Now, do I stick to that? Not always, but Mm -hmm. at least if I get way off track, I can look back and see the flagstones through the forest and follow them. There's some place to go. That's the brilliance of an outline. It isn't that you have to stick to it religiously. It's that you've thought this thing through so well that you can find your way home. Because books will lead you astray. And that's good when characters lead you astray, the story leads you astray. 
But if you get too far astray, there's no story. So the beauty of an outline is you can look back and go, oh, I should have gone left when I went right. And you throw away 40 pages and you go back and you go left and everything gets back on track. Got it. Got it. So uh, as we said, Choke Point will be in bookstores now. What are you working on now? I'm, uh, I've got some really terrific projects going. I didn't know, I didn't want to write the final um, edition in the Kingdom Keepers series, which is now six books. The sixth book came out a couple weeks ago. Just made the times list. Um, I didn't want, I want to write the seventh book without my readers because over the years I've, I've come to realize these guys are amazing. They read the book six, seven, eight times. Uh, so I have found a way with a software company called Caliloquy out of Palo Alto. Disney hired Caliloquy after I introduced them um, to create Kingdom Keepers Insider. And Jeff, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened because I have 12,000 kids writing my seventh book with me. Oh, my God. And if you want a cool experience, <laughs> uh, go on to KingdomKeepersInsider.com or download the free app. The whole thing is free. It's all about getting kids and adults writing. And we are having the most amazing fun. And every week I post a new chapter that's going to be published as the finished book in April of next year. And kids are getting their words pasted into my book with a footnote with their name. And they're going to see their descriptions and action in my finished book in April. Um, so awesome. this, it's just as exciting. No one's ever done this. It's just as exciting as can be. So that's my big project right now. I'm also um, in a huge edit on the next John Knox book. Uh, and I'm, um, you know, working on what will be a series of books that follow the Kingdom Keepers. So I'm never, I'm never wanting things to do. I'm, I've always <laughs> got stuff to keep my plate full. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your books? You can Google me, R-I-D-L-E-Y-P-E-A-R-S-O-N, or you can go to that.com. RidleyPearson.com is my website. Um, I'm on Facebook as Ridley Pearson. I'm on Facebook as Kingdom Keepers. Um, if you know my name, it's hard to miss me, but it's a, it's a tricky name to spell. It's R-I-D-L-E-Y-P-E-A-R-S-O-N. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Ridley Pearson, New York Times bestselling author. His new novel, Choke Point, is available in bookstores now, so grab a copy. Ridley, thanks for doing the interview. I so appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.